and welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valley and Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Catherine, this is week 45 and I'm, I just, yeah, I think I say this every time we look at the numbers though, it's, we're rolling through them and it's the last few weeks we've had really hot topics that have been fun, but again, very nerve wracking. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I see that we're on episode 45 and it's hard to believe that we're here. We're seven episodes away from, from making it to a year. And, um, I think I speak for both of us when I say that if we hadn't had each other, it wouldn't have gone on this long. (laughs) have been bored and run out of topic ideas or or the laughs and giggles totally (laughs) wouldn't have been there but we'll save those bloopers um listeners for another day and maybe our 52nd anniversary 52nd episode on our one year anniversary will um send you something that um is a little more light-hearted than a few weeks that we've been talking yeah yeah so this week's episode we wanted to um kind of respond a little bit to last week's episode. We had brought on uh, Colorado egg producers and talked about um, the cage-free egg bill that passed or got signed into law by Governor Polis a couple weeks ago. And we we wanted to hear the egg producer side and we wanted to hear that point of view. But after, after it aired, um, we realized that the rest of production agriculture specifically animal agriculture and the industries we come from dairy and beef weren't represented in that conversation and we wanted to make sure to cover all sides like we have talked about we need to have that true dialogue on all sides and and push back and question some of the norms that are happening because we feel like there's a little bit more to the story than what aired last week yeah couldn't have said it better val uh last week was very educational and informative um, and we got really a good layout of the process and how it happened and how, how the poultry industry um, dealt with, with the hand that they were given. Um, but, you know, you and I have spent the last week diving more into the issue and thinking about the implications of legislation like this um, and, and looking beyond, you know, just poultry. We're looking, mm-hmm. you know, we started looking at our own industries because that's what we do. You know, everything, we, we take it back to beef and dairy because that's where we come from. And so, yeah, we wanted... We wanted to give light to um, those perspectives this week, so that's what we're going to do. Yeah, because there is, I think the egg industry has, has accepted this and is moving on and is starting to, you know, make plans to convert some of their conventional barns to cage-free. But my question, Catherine, is is what's the implication to dairy specifically? Because we, we've seen in the history that we started with the hogs and you saw the gestation crates be enforced on the on the sows or the lack or removal of gestation crates on the hogs. Now we're on to the poultry and it's state by state in the poultry, but they're they're removing cages for the poultry. Who's next? To me, I see dairy as the next next industry to start chucking away at. And when they get to dairy and they finish dairy, they're headed for beef. I agree. I think that dairy is the next low-hanging fruit. Um, I think that you know the the vertical integration of both the hog and poultry industries has really lent itself to um being subject to this type of of legislation or activism um just because you know that's it's it's a more corporatized approach not that that's right or wrong it just is what it is um and and therefore you know decisions are absolutely made based 
on a dollar or perceived what the dollar can bring. And those industries too, just to add on, are very vertically integrated. Like in the beef industry specifically, you have your cow-calf producer, and then you may have your backgrounder, and then your stalker feeder, and then they go to the packing plant, and then they might even go to a further processor before they hit the hit the shelves. So that's six different people or companies that my product could make it to before it heads to the consumer, whereas poultry and hog is very, very vertically integrated. Exactly. Exactly. And so I mean it's it's the same with dairy, mostly as beef. You know, we aren't we aren't quite as segmented as you are, but you know, there's something like forty thousand dairy farms in the United States and, you know, ninety eight point nine percent of them are family owned still um you know and and some of them are very large family owned just like mine but that's okay doesn't mean they're not family owned um and there's you know there's there's the dairyman who milks the cows and then there's the the co-op that picks the tr- that picks the milk up in their truck then they take it to a processor um and do whatever they're going to do with it and then it ends up in a retail um situation so you know for four different places that milk goes um or touches in the supply chain and so back to the original point, um, you know, poultry and hogs have been, I think, an easy target for activists to um, to aim their agendas at. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're definitely going to dive into that a little bit more later. But, you know, it just follows that the next the next people they would set their sights on would be the dairy industry. And I think that's why we wanted to re revisit this topic and revisit this legislation, because we didn't look past the poultry industry last week and talking, you know, talking with our families and talking with other industry leaders, you know, there's a, and even some of the legislators um, that were behind some of this or were, were on the ag committees. um, I think they'd have a little different approach to it than just the the poultry segment. And so we don't want to, nullify the rest of the industry because as millennial act we want to get the whole broad picture and we want to we want to put our opinions and our sassiness a little bit behind it because we're here to question the status quo we're here to question the board of directors that have been sitting on these committees for years you know why are you doing it we're not um saying you're wrong but we want to know what your experience and what your um point of view has given to, to make those decisions because our point of view is a little bit different. Absolutely. Absolutely. We want to we wanna share our opinions with you through the lens that we view things through since last week we took um, the exact opposite approach and, you know, had a pretty interesting outcome. Um, you know, Valley and I have been talking about this all week, as we said, and we've decided that uh, we want to be respectful rabble-rousers. <laughs> <laughs> the RRRs. <laughs> and what we mean by that is just is looking at things from all sides and um and questioning things that we see that need to be questioned you know we built this platform to be able to do that and and we're going to take advantage of 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 our ability to do that absolutely and listeners like we we encourage you to do the same thing if you hear something today if you heard something three or four episodes ago that's not sitting right with you or you're like why is that question us send us an email Direct message us on one of our social media platforms. Reach out. Question your board of directors that you're a part of. It's okay to ask questions. It's not okay to be rude (laughs) or troll, but it's okay to question. Absolutely. We want that. And a few of you have done that, and they've led to some really, really cool conversations. 
So now that we've got that out of the way. <laughs> On to the episode. Yeah. So we started with last week. Um, the cage-free egg bill was signed into law in Colorado. Uh, we got the egg producer's perspective on it and, you know, the layout of, of how that process happened. And um, now Valley and I have spent this whole week talking about it. There hasn't been, you know, even a day that's gone by where we haven't talked about mm-hmm. that episode or that issue. And uh, we came up with a lot of questions and and some things that we think um, are worthy of, of being shared um, in response to to this legislation and and um, activism as a whole. Because our biggest fear from the dairy and beef perspective, as we had talked about just a little bit ago, um, is, our, is the lens we're looking at it through this week. Um, but is the fact that this kind of production practices is being put into legislation. And how is that going to impact the dairy industry further down the road? How is that going to affect the beef industry because if we start legislating this stuff and we quit going away from the free market and and it's a state by state thing what is the interstate commerce going to look like what is the true free trade is there still going to be premiums on the products that our parents are working at filling some of those niche markets and diversifications right absolutely so i mean i think the first thing we can look at is is let's talk about this being legislated into law so a, a specific production practice, um, cage-free eggs in this case, has been legislated and passed and made into law in Colorado. And it has in, in California and a whole bunch of other places. But our concern, um, you know, having grown up in a free market capitalistic society, is that being dictated what a specific production practice will be based on one small group's, however squeaky they are, Based on one small group's, um, you know, minority opinion or personal preference or, or, or bias um, is really going to cause a lot of harm to to the industries that feed us. And I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um, and and maybe cage free. And I don't to be honest, um, I haven't been in poultry barns very much in my life. And I don't know what they look like, and especially the modern day ones. And you know, last week, we talked about some of the innovation and those guys are cutting edge of innovation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and and I think going towards like a cage free, they're still in 100% confined as far as in a building. But might be more humane. It might be better for the birds. I don't know the science. And that might be a better practice. But my question is, why are we putting this into law? Exactly. Exactly. We can hash out, you know, the, the validity of certain production practices in another episode. And I think that we probably will. But but our, our aim here today is, is being legislated, being told, being mandated how we are going to produce the, the, the products that we have for so long mm-hmm. as, as American agriculturists. And, um, you know, we're, we're concerned that, um, the activism is, is dictating, well, it is dictating American animal agriculture production practices. And, you know, they always say the squeaky wheel gets the, the grease, right? And, um, you know, I would, I would tend to think that these extreme vegan or extreme, um, animal, you know, rights agendas are are rather a small minority of the people but man are they squeaky and that's where 
that's where the grease is put. That's where, well, we'll just give them this little nugget and we'll just give them this little nugget, which is fine for the year 2020. Right. But how many nuggets do we give all the way down and we get to year 2050 and we can't milk cows anymore? Yeah. Or we're the now they're on the beef segment and we're all on grass-fed beef for the whole United States and we're struggling to feed a, a growing population in the United States, let alone our export markets. Seriously, and I'm impressed that you think we're even going to be able to eat beef, <laughs> you know, if something like this continues on because, because the stated goal of animal activists, I mean, HSUS, I think Wayne Paselli has said this before, the stated goal of these organizations is to end animal agriculture. And so, yes, the, the, you know, at this, at, in this particular issue, the stakeholders were at the table and were able to collaborate with the people bringing, bringing this to bear, which was the activist organizations. Um, but you know, I, you know, I, I might, I might get yelled at for this, but my view is that that was the first step towards the destruction of Amer of the American agriculture, animal production industry, because they're going to, Keep asking for more. Give them an inch and they're going to take a mile, right? And it's Catherine and I preach all the time, let's have those hard conversations. Let's sit down with somebody that has a differing opinion than us. And we are still preaching that to this day. But there are some people that, and there's values that you need to stand on within your industries, within yourself, that we're not going to compromise. And and for us, that's one thing is is keeping animal agriculture alive is something I am not willing to compromise. I'm willing to sit down at the table with the activists because I'm willing to talk to anybody, but I might not give them legislation. We might have to figure out another way if they want something, but starting to give them a little more because they've proven in the past to bulldoze us. To You know, we talked about Project Counter Glow a couple weeks ago, and they're just gathering data on us right now. Exactly. I mean, those, that is, we can go back and listen to that episode, listeners. But that is, that is, you know, prime example, exhibit A of, of, you know, animal activists out to, to invest or out to, um, you know, push their agenda and, and begin getting rid of animal ag, of animal anything, honestly. I mean, Project Counterglow targets zoos and, and mink farms and, you know, anything that's related to animals, um, agricultural or not, they're they're narrowing in on it and, and you know, they eventually want to make it all stop. And, you know, we understand that compromise is essential in any endeavor. I mean, me and Valine work in regulation, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to give a little to get a little, but... In this case, we feel that giving that little is just, like I said, the first step towards giving away everything, everything in our beloved industry. And we've, Catherine and I, um, grew up on, on generational operations where our, our grandparents or my great-grandparents um, have passed it on to generations. And our parents have adapted. They've adopted new practices. They've sat on those boards. They've been a voice for the industry. And they've fought tooth and nail for everything that our family has. And the opportunity for us to come back to the farm or our siblings to come back for, to the farm or for us to have other opportunities in production, animal agriculture, and for us to even give 
a little inch of that away scares the living daylights out of me. How could it not? I mean, you just said it. We have watched our parents scrap and scrabble for everything that they have. And I mean, I'm a fifth generation dairy farmer. There's been five generations in my family who have milked cows, Um, you know, and I'm specifically second generation from my parents. And you, what are you? Fifth generation. (laughs) See? Okay. So we're both there. And, and we, we have grown up with the history of knowing what our ancestors did to get us to where we were then. And then watching our parents do their very level, absolute best to make sure that they provided for us and our siblings, not just to, not just to survive, but to have a place to come back to if we wanted. And what, I mean, is there any greater gift than that? And so the idea of of even thinking about giving that heritage, that legacy, that family story away is just abhorrent to us. And, you know, I think unfortunately that there is a lot of either miscommunication or non-communication between us and, and the animal activists, for example, who don't know that that's how we feel. And, you know, maybe it wouldn't matter to them. But we're not money-grubbing farmers. We are not. And for the most part, we're adaptation. We're here to listen to the producer and consumer. And and some of some of me has the good old boy mentality in it. You know, I love I love horseback moving cattle across the desert. Like there's just something very rewarding to that. And the good old boy mentality of the way granddaddy did it. Like there's something rewarding. But I also recognize that 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 practice and their perception isn't going to take my family, my children, my grandchildren into the next generation. We, my parents have been adaptive. Like we had to move the cow, we moved the cows from purebred Hereford to commercial cow calf. And then we took them off the home place and moved them to Nevada where we found cheaper grass. And then we diversified to put some grass fed, grass finished, some new breeds into the operation to make it so that I can come back. So my brother could be a part of the farming and ranching operation if he wanted to. That's adaptation. That's innovation. That's listening to the consumer. There was no regulations involved in that. Exactly. Exactly. And I have the same exact story to tell from a dairy perspective. And I hope you'll permit me to do that, listeners. Well, I'm going to because it's my platform. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's, it's the same thing. Um, you know, my parents started out with 70 cows in Connecticut. And they were brown Swiss. And brown Swiss are fun. I mean, they're sort of stupid, but... And they're pretty. They're pretty, yeah. <laughs> but they don't make as much milk as, say, the Holsteins. So my family, my mom and dad transitioned the herd over to Holsteins. And eventually, listeners, you know, if you've listened to me long enough, that, that we eventually ended up in Utah, um, where we now milk 5,000 cows. And uh, we no longer dairy the way... The rest of 99% of the dairy industry does. We left our co-op system and decided to start direct supplying to a yogurt maker. And, you know, that was certainly a very big shift for us. But everyone in my family has said, we've we've sat around the dinner table and talked about it, that if we had not made that shift, we would not be in business today. And my parents' stated goal has always been the sustainability of the family business for the family. And beyond that, now that we've grown the way that we have, is to be able to take care of the 80 employees that we have who rely on us as well, who who care for our cows as though they were their their own. And 
you know, have, have really become like family themselves, um, off on this big adventure. And so, so Valine's point comes back to, we changed before we were forced to, we changed, um, you know, at the request of, of industries, we did it without regulation and it is going gangbusters for us. It is working out really, really well. Well, and we're able, you know, like the majority of our cow herd still conventional, but we're able to get some premiums off that grass finish stuff. You're able to get a premium or push or um, put that dollar value in at the beginning of the year for that milk you're going to sell. And it gives you an opportunity to, to play the free market a little bit and not necessarily be price takers, but we're starting to be price makers. Exactly. And that is, you know, that is something that gets brought up at every agricultural seminar and conference and meeting. You know, how do we stop being price takers and start being price makers? Well, friends, our families and many others that we know, you know, because we we come from progressive agriculturists and we want to be progressive agriculturists. So we hang out with progressive agriculturists. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, they're asking the same questions and they're doing the same things. Maybe a little bit different on this ranch, maybe a little bit tweaked on that dairy, but they're doing it. They're doing it before they're forced to, before, and by forced in this case, I mean by an outside organization that has designs on ending their business. Yeah, and they'll do it through regulatory agencies, and they know, and I'm going to use the, the state of California or Colorado as an example. When you have the governors we have, when you have the legislators we have, that can that can be manipulated and then they they end up putting it into law and and how hard is it now once it's in law to undo that what if you know conventional practices we're able to make cages a little more humane and we're able to tweak things or maybe the name convention for heaven's sakes changes a little bit <laughs> does that how does that fall into regulations and working in regulations it's a bunch of checkboxes in my eyes a lot of times. Yes, we need to keep everything in order. And like we talked about, I think going back with Sarah Mock's interview and the discussion we had with regulations there and hers was environmental. But, you know, if your neighbor's doing something that's not quite status quo or below status quo, how do we keep him accountable? And I kind of agree, you know, if it's, how do we keep our neighbors, you know, if, if cage-free is really the best practice, at a minimum, to take care of our chickens, how do we get the, the caged folks to transition over without regulations? Exactly. And that's, you know, that's holding each other accountable within our industry. And that's something that I think that we can work to be better at, you know, in agriculture as a whole. But like you said, with a, with, without it being regulated, without it being mandated, um, you know, let, let's figure out what the best practices are, truly the best for, for the animal, number one, for what the consumer wants, for the environment, and to be able to take care of that producer because that's part of it. What are the best things to hit those four, those four pillars? And, you know, going back to your point about, um, you know, California and Colorado, you know, um, these are purple states or blue and they, they tend to lean a little bit more blue nowadays. And that's, that's not right or wrong. That's just a fact of how it is. But those folks don't tend to be from agriculture. Agriculture is very, very poorly represented in state and federal houses of legislature. And, you know, we sort of get left behind. And and part of it is our fault. You know, we, we certainly need to work on that. And that's a whole other topic for another day. Mm -hmm. But 
um, you know, when, when you end up with an activist elected official and, you know, even more to that point, someone who comes along with them, um, who has an agenda and can just push it because they happen to be a part of the entourage is very, very disturbing um, to me, particularly. I think, you know, I bring to mind um, Governor Polis when he was in Colorado, when he was doing one of his COVID updates, you know, he took a pot shot antibiotic use in animals. Well, and it didn't even, when I was listening to that, the first... I thought he did a very good job in the first 10 minutes talking about the COVID issue, what we need to do, how we need to do. And I agreed with him. And then the minute he somehow skewed it and said, you know, we need to do something like and like not putting antibiotics in our meat. I was like, like your brain exploded, number one. My brain exploded, number two, because if you have any understanding, basic understanding of antibiotics and viruses, you know... The antibiotics can do nothing for viruses. And we didn't need to bring up production animal agriculture and use it as a metaphor in our COVID experience. Like, for a human disease. Yeah, there was no need for that. But the the politicians, and it's really hard for me to relate um, on that level because it's so... They have that underlying agenda, I think, that they always try to put in to these big political platforms. And I'm, I feel like I'm a straight shooter. Like you ask me what I think and I'll, I'll tell you. Exactly. And you know, we don't, we don't see that in, in activists, elected officials, legislators, you know, um, executive government, executive branch powers, activist judges, you know, they, they, they forget that, um, we are a country built on the idea that, you know, we, we protect we, we are led by the majority, but protect the inalienable rights of the minority. And in this case, it really feels like the minority has their own specific agenda targeted to get rid of things that they don't happen to like or that don't, you know, don't sit well with them. And their answer, instead of, instead of trying to have that conversation and understand, you know, the concept as a whole is to try to legislate us, regulate us, mandate us out of business eventually. It's hard to wrap my head around the extreme activists, but I guess I I could probably fall in that boat on the animal agriculture side because I don't that's one thing I won't give up is meat and dairy. Right. Because that's that's my lifeblood. That's what I'm passionate about. And I think you know tr- continuing to have these conversations and trying to put our biases aside but also continuing to stand up for what we believe in. You know, it's it's getting involved, you know, starting at the local level and asking those hard conversations to people we value. I think we, Catherine and I have talked about this a lot, is, is how do we make a difference? How do we have our voices heard? And it's, I think, having the courage um, to stand up and question those people that have been in power and that have the experience, why are you doing this? What is this implication going to have? And it takes courage. It took courage for me to ask a lot of questions on a lot of these episodes because I wanted to play devil's advocate. I wanted to see the other side. I wanted, and that I feel sometimes puts a label on me, but I want to know. We need to ask those hard questions that the activists are going to ask. We need to ask those hard conversations that I have deep down in my gut about all these hard conversations we've had. 
You're right. You're right. I know that we harp on this a lot, but it's it's really truly something that we need to we need to work on getting better at. You know, um, I I think it's misattributed attributed to him, but I'm going to use it anyway. That Plato said that the the mark of a a educated and open mind is being able to entertain an idea without adopting it or without agreeing with it. And you know that comes to us sitting down at the table with these activists and listening to them and what they have to say about you know their their desire for a vegan future. It also requires on their part to do the same for us. You have to do it without getting mad, without leaving the table, you know, being able to entertain those uncomfortable ideas that go against your confirmation bias but might open your 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 perspective and maybe lead to true compromise and not beating one side or the other over the head with you know the power of the government and feeling like on both sides if we give an inch they're going to take a mile exactly and you know we feel you can you can obviously tell that we feel like activists are beating animal agriculture over the head with a hammer and taking several miles and there's there's definitely another side to the story but we need to sit down and be able to look at it 360 degrees exactly and listeners i think we're going to end on that note um but we want you to continue looking at issues on 360 degrees um we want to hear your thoughts specifically on the cage-free egg bill um it's a very controversial issue in all sectors of agriculture, not just the poultry industry. Um, so we want to hear from you. You can email us at talk to us at millennialag.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. So thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. And until then, we're Millennial Ag.